Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today we have a guy who stacked up a whole bunch of deer with a bow and arrow on the line, Mr. Glenn Adcock. Glenn, how are you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, Andrew. How are you guys? Oh, I'm doing really good, especially because in less than a week, I'm driving to Wyoming, baby. 
Jacob, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, dude, I'm I'm doing well, man. I feel I can't I kind of feel outnumbered being the only Bama fan on the line right now. This is kind of this is terrible. I know dude. you're sitting there you with two with Auburn your, grads, your Bama yeah. pants on. They're almost as red as your hair. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I had to support with uh, two big Auburn fans. I had to show some support in here, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I was not, I'm, this on a side note, I was rooting for y'all. You know, I didn't want y'all to lose the old uh, old miss. old miss this past week. I gave up football this year. We're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just gonna put it that way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, Glenn, man, I'm, I'm glad uh, you were able to make it. Um, you were recommended to us uh, by a buddy of ours, uh, Zach Stokes, uh, who was a friend of yours as well, and this recommended said that you'd be a, a really interesting guy to have on just with your personal experiences and just kind of how good of a guy you are. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, I sent, him, I, I, I sent him a text, and I congratulated him on being the person that completely ruined y'all's podcast and, and led to the death of it because it's um, – why well, I and I appreciate him reaching out to you guys and talking to you about me, but he's he's probably one of the hardest working hunters that you'll that you'll run across. Of course, and anybody wants to listen to, we actually did an episode with uh, Zach and, uh, and Thomas Nix a couple couple months ago back in May. If anyone wants to go listen to that, that was one of our first deer episodes. But Glenn, um, you know, kind of kick us off. Uh, you know, for anybody that might not know of you. Um, kind of give us our background and give us your background when it comes to bow hunting kind of how did you get into it and how did you get kind of a passion for you know chasing whitetails in the southeast you know i i grew up in opelika which is you know just right outside of auburn and grew up in a family that had a had a just a deep tradition of hunting and you know our hunting club was made up of of our family and so i i grew up hunting with all of my dad's brothers and you know my dad was the oldest of six boys and so i grew up hunting with my father his his uh his brothers and all my cousins and so it was it was something that you know from the time i could remember walking that we you know that we always did <clears throat> and then over the years um i just i developed an obsession with with bow hunting and my dad didn't know anything about bow hunting but you know he bought me a bow and pretty much told me he's like you know there it is but if you want to know how to use it you're gonna have to find somebody else because i don't have a clue and luckily i lived in a town where one of the probably the lesser known greatest bow hunters in the world lived in opelika and that was george mann and at the time I was actually dating his daughter in high school and he, um, he kind of took me in and showed me how to shoot my bow, taught me about, um, arrow spine, tuning a bow, uh, you know, all of that stuff that, you know, most people at an early age just don't get that kind of tutelage. And then, um, actually met and he i met and he introduced me to jerry simmons who was the founder of simmons broadheads and so i i got to spend quite a bit of time you know hunting with those guys as a teenager and it was just always one of those things that i just from that point on it was just more of an uh, an obsession you know i deer hunting in general gun or bow is is just a passion and just fascinating to me but there's there's just something special about bow hunting them that that i a lot of people just don't understand 
Oh, of course. Well, Glenn, you've been bow hunting longer than me and Andrew have been alive, okay? So <laughs> one thing I want to ask you just right off the bat, in, in your years of in decades of bow hunting, what is some of the biggest lessons that you've learned while bow hunting that maybe is something that right off the bat would be important for us to, to touch on before we kind of dive in a little bit deeper on this episode? Well, biggest thing that I learned is that it, it's so easy that there's always something new and shiny that comes along. And, and I, most of the time, I don't see people really developing consistency with their equipment. Um, and while it's it's not necessarily a low barrier of entry but it does you know it takes it takes some practice and i think that the that tuning a bow has become kind of a lost art because of um new broadheads that hide flaws in your in your form and your in your bow tuning and so, it, you know, biggest mistake I can see is that, you know, people just don't know their equipment, mainly because they don't shoot a bow more than one or two years. Even then, they don't know how to tune it. Oh, I mean, I think that's a really good point and something that's really interesting and probably something that people ought to pay more attention to, especially get more of a passionate bow hunter, myself included, uh, you know, kind of learn better to or learn more how to become a better um you know, archer when it comes to tuning my own equipment and having a, you know, a better setup and more consistent setup. Now, one thing, this is as a random question before we kind of get into this episode, but I've had people ask us and hound us with all these guys that we have on that are big bow hunters. What is your arrow setup? We, I've had a bunch of guys ask randomly that for us to start yeah. asking guests this, uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but you said you've been shooting Simmons broadheads for a long time, but you know, kind of what are you doing when it comes to your arrow setup? So I, I shoot more of a traditional style arrow. Um, I, I think part of that's just because of my age. And plus, I think my arrows look cool. You know, I, it's something about big feathers are just sexy on the back end of an arrow. And right now I'm shooting, um, I'm shooting Carbon Express, the, the Heritage 350s. On the front end, I'm shooting the Simmons uh, 175 grain uh, sharks with uh, three natural turkey fletches. I, <clears throat> I save my turkey turkey wing feathers, and I have friends that will save their turkey wing feathers for me, and I process and fletch my arrows with those feathers. I, that's something I've been interested in doing. Uh, what, what? Let me ask you this. What, what is like a, the biggest downsides to using um, real feathers? Because I, I've heard guys kind of trash talking me like, oh, they're loud or – you know, they don't do good in wet conditions. I mean, what's your experience been like with that? I've not had any problems with it. And, you know, in most days, if it's going to be wet enough that if it's going to affect your fletchings, you probably shouldn't be in a tree anyway with a bow. Um, and and I'll probably get beat up for saying that. But, you know, there's a certain amount of rain where it becomes unethical to try and track a deer at, at – um, at some point but even you know even in situations where they get wet the the thing about the natural turkey feathers is they have kind of an oil line on them and when you process them you try to get as much as that oil line in the feather as you can and that's kind of a natural waterproofing that they preen into from the oil glands into those wing feathers 
And, and so there's kind of that natural waterproofing to those. And then with regular feathers, you know, you can, there's silicone sprays and things that you can put on them to protect them from it. But I, you know, I'm shooting a three, three fletch, five and a half inch shield cut natural turkey feather, and I'm shooting it through a whisker biscuit. And I've never had any issues with, with air flight or damage to the fletching going through that setup. Very cool. Yeah, I agree, man natural feathers especially like a turkey feather just looks sick i, I really want to yeah. do that i'll probably that'll be probably something i'd tinker with i might have to pick your brain on that a little bit more uh no anytime and there you know and there's just something sexy about shooting a deer with a turkey that you killed the spring before yes just, you know? <laughs> yes i'm all about it man i'm all about it you got <laughs> yeah so um so kind of kind of getting into your hunting strategy uh i know that uh, you spoke to Jacob a bunch on the phone um, before we started recording, and I haven't talked to you about this yet, but one thing I'm really curious about is the, the whole idea of uh, sleeping in and scouting your way into a spot, um, which I've talked about a little bit. I started doing that last year, but uh, I'd like to hear kind of your explanation and your, and your thought process for that. Um, and, and maybe like a, if you have a success story on like a nice buck that you've shot uh, doing such a thing, uh, that, that'd be great too if you could share yeah. that. You know, we, um, you know, a lot of times in, on the public lands or places that I'm hunting out of state that, you know, it's not your home turf. It's especially if you don't, if you haven't had time to go and scout it. And so I'll, I'll use, you know, you guys called me and we just pulled in for an out of state hunt at a public land place that we come to a lot. And, you know, I hadn't been here since last year. And where the deer were last year may not be where the deer are this year. And, you know, you have certain spots that you're familiar with if you're going into, you know, the same area. But, again, things change from year to year. Mast crop is different, and you just really don't know if they're going to be on those same patterns. And so rather than bumbling into a waypoint that you've punched in from, you know, uh, e-scouting not knowing what you're getting into because i've done that walked into a spot in the dark picked a tree because it looked good on the map and you know sat up in the tree and stayed in there till 10 o'clock and then you know climbed down only to find that there hadn't been a deer come through there in two weeks and now i've just burned half a day of a seven-day vacation when i should have been scouting and so i started you know years ago that you know the first couple of days that we that I'm here, I will sleep in, get up, be at the trailheads, you know, seven o'clock or, you know, sometime around sunrise and then just hunt scout my way through until I find something that looks good. And if I don't, I just keep moving. You know, if you find hot sign, you climb, set up, hunt it. But if you don't, there's no use in wasting your time in a place where deer aren't. Yeah, that, and that makes so much sense to me because, uh, I mean, even for guys that are hunting at home, I mean, kind of my situation right now, getting ready for this trip and work's been busy, and, you know, the couple of hunts I've been out so far in Alabama, I haven't really had any time to prepare, uh, and I've kind of run into the same thing where I walk in before daylight and I get set up, and I'm like, well, I don't know if this is going to be any good, and like you said, you kind of waste half of a day, so... Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about kind of your thought process when you're going into um, an area like that where you're just going to scout hunt your way into a spot. Um, I guess what's the first thing that you look at when you're looking for an area to go in 
and check out? Yeah, uh, you, you know, based on the time of year, you're going to have a what's a a predominant prevailing wind that um, that's going to be probably the most consistent direction for that time of year. And and so if I'll look at uh, like this time of year, the winds are you know everything's pretty much out of the north to some degree, with the exception of you know you might have a day or two when a front comes through that you'll get some southerly stuff, but it's all pretty much north, northeast, northwest. And so I look for those ridge points that are running that east-west pattern, and then start marking finger ridges coming off of those to the south and just looking at those areas little bowls um, where multiple ridges come together and kind of form the like a spokes of a hub of a wheel you'll see those kind of bowls that bowl up into those ridges and that's what we look for as areas to try you know when the sun comes up that's where we're starting to walk through and just ease through those areas looking for fresh sun now, when you find you find these areas on you know topo maps and aerial maps and everything else, and you're going in to hunt or you're going in to kind of scout your way to a spot, what is what is your mindset when you're starting to do that? You find you have these pins you kind of want to work to, but what is your mindset? I mean, are you looking for what what kind of sign are you looking for right now? I mean, are you looking for a feed sign? Are you looking for you know fresh rubs, old rubs? I mean, what's kind of telling you that this is a spot I need to spend time in? consistent feed sign more than anything else because you know we're getting into the time of year where you know the bucks are driven by by sex but the does are still driven by food and and it's all about their stomach and and where they want to be to get that satisfied and so i'm looking for consistent feed sign and i you know i in areas where you can where you can scout it in the spring and areas like that yeah you go in and try to find those bedding areas and and maybe go back and hit those spots and see if there's some consistent sign coming in and out of those but for the most part you know if you're flying blind into a into an area that's completely strange to you you just have to go by what looks best topographically and where you think deer are going to be hanging out for certain situations where it's security or wind. Um, but really sign wise, I'm looking at where they're going to get that stomach full because that's, that's what really is going to drive them. So when you talk about consistent feed sign, I'd, I'd be curious one, just kind of what that looks like to you. But another thing that I'm really wondering about is, uh, do you, do you account, um, for different areas like where where there's different deer densities like for instance you might be in a high deer density area and find a certain amount of feed sign and say like oh i don't know this this doesn't really look good enough whereas if you were in a lower deer density area and found that same sign it would be like you know the best thing you could possibly find so do you do you kind of take it area by area like that yeah you kind of have to and you know right now the place where we are right now is kind of in a in a in a low deer density cycle and so yeah concentrated feed sign is going to look a whole lot different than than it would be for a you know for a higher deer density type area you know but the thing too is is it's going to depend on how concentrated it is because on a high mass crop year that feed sign is going to be spread way out and it's not going to be concentrated. And so you have to kind of focus in on those areas where they're traveling. Then you got to really try to get close to that bedding because they just, they aren't going to have to move very far at all. 
in those in those high mass crop years and that's kind of what we're facing right now through the southeast at least in south carolina i mean you can't step foot in the woods without covering up five acres with your foot i mean it's just it, it's stupid that's going to spread that feed sign out and so you, it it's going to change how you want to go about scouting those deer because you know there aren't they just aren't going to have to move far so in in that kind of situation you know whether it be like a lower deer density area where you're just not going to find that crazy you know feed sign that we all dream about finding or if it's a, a year with just a really heavy mass crop and the feed sign is spread out in that event what kind of sign do you divert to to know where to set up yeah, just, you know, you, you just look for the usual stuff, concentrated. You know, if, if there's poop there, they're spending time there looking for stuff that's browsed off, you know, whether they're hitting green briar in and, in and around oaks. Um, but, you know, again, it depends on on the habitat and what type of terrain you're hunting. You know, if it's all, if it's all pines, you're going to be looking around those SMZ zones where there are a few oaks. And then those open burned areas in those pines, if there's new growth, obviously it's going to be green briar and all that stuff. And so you're just looking for what's been browsed off and where it looks like they've been spending most of their time, you're going to find that scat hanging out. Glenn, I want to get back on the topic just a little bit about how, you know, you kind of sleeping in and kind of scouting your way to an area to try to find the right spot to set up on instead of just going in blonde on the area. Go over, I want you, I want to get a little bit more into the mindset of yourself when you're doing that. You know, I think so many guys, I'm guilty of this too. Actually, this happened to me the last time we got out in the woods, I guess last last weekend, where you're scouting through an area, you find some feed sign, but to me, curiosity always gets the best of me. I got to see what's over the next little lip. I got to see what's around this bend in this SMZ or whatever it is. Yeah. How do you know when you're going in like this, where you're kind of going to a spot, either you've had history of it in the past, but you're trying to find the hot sign or you've never been there before and you're just trying to find the right sign to hunt. How do you know when to stop and set up? (laughs) That's, um, you know, that's the gamble especially if you're finding a lot of sign you know if i've been walking for three four hours and i hadn't found anything and then all of a sudden i find something that looks fresh and fairly concentrated i i'm probably climbing you know right there not going any further but if i'm hitting good sign in multiple places you know every 20 to 30 minutes and it's pretty consistent then i'll I'll have a tendency to want to keep moving and making sure that, you know, there's not something better. And then having that option to always backtrack to uh, a marked waypoint or, you know, a previous area that you've walked through. It, it sounds like it's very hit or miss on what you're trying to set up on, as in when to slow down and stop just based off whatever the sign's telling you. And it seems like it just has to come from just experience. And that's sounds like with a lot of guys we talk to, it's just based off experience. I mean, would you, would you say that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, it's the time of year and, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're finding just ripping hot, fresh scrapes, it's, it'd be hard to walk past that right now. Um, you know, cause here we are, it's end of October getting into the first of November and, and it's, um, you know this is the time of year where they're starting to do it you know and that's that's kind of what we all live for those bucks chasing and that's when they're easily called and stuff like that and so yeah you 
I think you'll be more rut sign focused. Um, but again, I wouldn't overlook food, especially if there's dough concentration in there for obvious reasons. And so it's just kind of, it's going to depend on, you know, you're going to hunt September deer a little bit different than you're going to hunt November deer. Very good point. Well, Glenn, going back to kind of your mindset scouting as you're kind of going through an area to try to find that spot to set up on, you know, throughout the time of the day, let me ask, if, if you're going into a spot, and again, maybe you start at daybreak or just after daybreak, so you kind of see, you can kind of see, are you, let me ask, when it comes to walking into an area, and this might be overthinking the situation, but I don't think it is, when you're walking into a spot, at what point are you slowing down? Are you constantly like just still hunting your way through an area? I mean, are you cruising down a, a, an access path to drop off the side of a ridge? Or, I mean, how are you kind of going in and controlling yourself so you can kind of slip in into place kind of undetected, win in your favor to really try to, you know, use the best of your abilities of kind of sneaking through to be able to hunt and kill a deer in that area if you find the sign that tells you that's where you need to hunt? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I take a kind of moderate pace with it and you don't want to just blast through because I think you'll miss stuff. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta use it as a dual purpose, um, approach. Yeah. You're scouting, but you know, if, if you play your, like we just got finished looking at some stuff about, about 10, 15 minutes before I got on the phone with you guys is that we were looking at, okay, what's the wind direction in the morning? So, you know, we want to check out these spots because our approach is going to be from the south because we've got north winds in the morning. And so we're going to be working those ridges downwind and, you know, we're hunting while we're scouting. And so you're not going to be moving at a real fast pace, but you need to also make sure that you're at least moving fast enough that you can start checking spots off and you're not spending too much time in a negative sign area. Now, is there a certain part of the day where, you know, after like mid-morning, are you going to pick up the pace a little bit more, start really cruising? And then for some reason, if you don't find something by, you know, mid-afternoon, you're going to kind of keep doing it until you find that right spot? Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say is that, you know, you know, 11, 12 o'clock when, when that time of day where the, you know, movement's going to be at the, at its lowest point, you know, you'll kind of pick it up and, and either jump back in the truck, head to another area, um, and, you know, and then start working in for the afternoon or just kind of, um, you know, slow down at that point and then wait and, and then move to another area after, you know, after just taking a break. But yeah, it just means, um, it's just going it, to, and, you know, and I think weather is going to dictate that too. Cause if you've got one of those days where it looks like you're going to have all day long movement, that's going to, I think that's going to put a little bit more emphasis on trying to find something quicker so that you can get set up rather than risk just bumping stuff, moving around. Now I got a question. So, when you're when you're going into these areas, is there ever like a common theme as far as something that you're working your way towards? Like, are you looking for a cutover or some other kind of thicket or a CRP field and kind of scouting your way towards that? Uh, or is it just more like topography based or, or something like that? The area where I am right now is all big woods. And so very little open areas. And, and so it's more based on topography. And, you know, and of course there's some history. If you've, if you've been in an area before, you know, there's some burn history or storm damage or where some trees have been blown over and some hidden little thickets and pockets and places like that. 
that uh, historically hold hold deer, or if you can see something like that through through e-scouting, then that those are the places that I'm probably heading to first because those are going to be you know close to food and they're going to provide bedding. Glenn, how are you all covering these ridges, working with the wind into your favor? How are you working those ridges? Because you're talking about finding these side ridges kind of coming off the main ridge. You know, find a ridge that runs east to west. You find these uh, secondary points coming off jutting to the south. How are you all working that? I mean, are you trying to get up to a certain elevation line and start working your way across? Or are you just trying to go up and over? How do you go about, you know, picking a path that you're going to take on the way in and possibly how you're going to swing back around so that you're always on, you know, the most high odds areas? Yeah. So, you know, all the all the ridge tops out here, just like in most places, every ridge top's got an old logging road on it. And you're gonna see sign on those things. But when I was younger and when I was, you know, first started hunting this, these areas, those were the that's where the prettiest sign was and I would hunt those scrapes along those road beds and that and those rubs. But I never you know, we'd see some deer doing that, but we just never saw a lot. And then, you know, I hadn't had an independent or an original thought probably in my life. And then I got um, keyed into travel routes on the the upper third ridge line. you know, just off the ridge line, that upper third elevation line. And sure enough, you know, you'll always see a trail on that elevation. And so we find that trail. And then we will work that into the wind, um, just scouting, looking for a um, consistent sign along that trail route. When you're on that trail, I mean, are you are you walking just off the trail to keep your scent off of it? Um, I'll, I'll ask you one. Are you do you go as far as to like think about how the how the wind might blow your ground scent over that trail? Like, are you that careful about it? No, no, I I, I probably should be, but. I'm not, you know, if we're, if we're going through there, I figure once you've stepped on it, you've already kind of X that section out, unless you're in a situation like we were talking about before where you may have to backtrack. But then at that point, I'm really not worried about it to that, to that extent, you know, um, cause hopefully you're going to set up where by the time they get to that point, it's going to be too late for them anyway, if you're, you know, trying to position yourself right. But no, I don't. Uh, I, I'm just not that anal about scent control. You know, maybe I should be. Well, that that kind of brings up another question, which I might already know your answer to this. But I mean, when when it comes to setting up with the wind and everything, uh, like if you're if you're setting up for an afternoon hunt and uh, you know setting up on the these hillsides and everything can be kind of tricky as far as wind and thermals go. When you're setting up in such a spot. Are you setting up for the day winds or for when the thermals fall or uh, are you just kind of setting up regardless of what the wind's doing? You know, pick which one's going to be the lesser of two evils. And a lot of times it's going to be, I usually will settle on the setting up for the evening thermal shift because that's typically when you're going to see the most deer. But it depends on if you've got a good you know a good tree or if that's your good shooting lane or not and so the the best the best setup for scent for wind direction in the world if it doesn't offer you a good shot to the area that you're covering doesn't mean anything and so sometimes you just gotta 
gamble and and hunt where the where you get the best opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we've had a surprising amount of guys on this on this show who they'll 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 come to the conclusion like, man, if uh, if I can't get the wind right, then I'll just hunt it anyways, especially during the rut, because they're like, you know, it's it's better than you know, it, like if you're gonna hunt that spot once or twice out of the whole entire year, might as well risk it. Um, that's right. You know, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on an out of state hunt. What am I going to do? Come back next week when the wind, wind's right. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm here and, mm-hmm. and these deer, are, you know, they're used to being hunted by, you know, by, by a lot of people. And you're just, especially if you're on an out of state trip, like I am, you're just not going to get that many opportunities. And so you gotta, you gotta hunt the area of, where they're where you're getting them fresh sign and if the wind direction doesn't play out perfect that day hunt it anyway glenn when did the whole uh, thought process of kind of sleeping in and scouting your way into a spot really kind of come to fruition for yourself and when did that kind of click i just kept bumping deer and and then you know you're bumping deer going in but at the same time you know especially if you haven't had a chance to scout i just got tired of hanging in place this is where there wasn't any sign you know you'd get down and what looked good on on paper just did not turn out to be a a good spot that year yeah there was old sign there but just not anything anything new and so i i just wanted to take rather than waste days in a you know half a day in a tree i figured my time would be better spent scouting that time and then waiting until i found that fresh sign before i decided to hunt yeah, Glenn, do you have a do you have a hunt in mind possibly that you can kind of break down kind of like what happened uh, where you kind of went into a spot and, and had success doing what we're talking about, kind of sleeping in and finding that hot sign to hunt on? Yep, absolutely. So it's a couple of years ago and we were on a, you know, my wife and kids and I were, were camping on an out-of-state hunt. I think that was a couple of years, you know, a year or two into when I told her that I wasn't going to, you know, I was going to quit chasing dead deer and I wasn't going to be bumbling through at dark. And, you know, I was going to start scout hunting my way in after daylight the first few days. And it was um, just a couple of days after one of the youth hunts here where they had the youth quota rifle hunt. And so there'd been some pressure out here. I hit a trailhead and within a 150 yards of a trailhead i found a fresh rub line like pine trees you can still see the sap dripping it was minutes old so i started following that trail which led me off to just this little obscure ridge point on the back side of these two thickets that was just choked up had a lot of green briar around it but then it just kind of opened up into a little small point that had just a ton of sign on it and so just immediately it was one of those well there's really no any sense in going any further and climbed there and didn't um uh, didn't see much that afternoon but went back in there the following morning and saw a really good buck come through that morning and he was just out of range and uh wound up around um 11 o'clock that morning shooting a doe out of that out of that tree but um i never did get back on that buck but it was uh you know it was just one of those places where you just followed the sign you know the fresh sign just kind of led me right in there to it and it was i think i started i found that at um 8 a.m so it was an early find on that that trip 
Oh, well, great. Well, Glenn, you know, one thing that sounds kind of important to your style of hunting is this being mobile um, and, and kind of, you know, learning to be mobile, uh, whether it's, you know, hunting from the ground, hunting from the tree, whatever it is, but this have an advantage at all times of, you know, bouncing around and, and never feeling like you're stuck into one spot. And I feel like you've had probably, I mean, close to probably, you know, three decades worth of mobile hunting. Kind of, how does that transition happen for you? I mean, how did you start out kind of mobile hunting and, and how did that transition happen to help you maybe stay on more deer and be able to get more deer on the ground? Well, just, you, I, um, I get bored pretty easy is, is probably the main, the, the main driver to it. So when I was young, I just, I didn't like sitting in the same stands, looking at the same scene all the time and, and. And so I, I got into climbers pretty early, um, rather than hunting, um, hunting a lot of the permanent stands, you know, and I've, gosh, I've climbed into everything from Bakers to Warren and Sweats, Cougar Claw, Summits, you name it, you know, over the years, we've kind of had them all, but that was, you know, the guys that were teaching me how to hunt back then, that was the main thing. They were like, you got to be able to adjust and move to where the deer want to be. And they don't always want to be where you put those permanent stands. And so they, those guys got me into it pretty early, you know, as a teenager back in the late eighties. And, um, and it just, it just kind of has stuck with me from there. Well, what's the current setup that you're running? See, right now I've got um, – I jumped in the saddle game two years ago. Last, or, excuse me, last year was my first season in the saddle. And so I've got a um, Arrow Hunter Kestrel adjustable bridge on it that I put in with the uh, Sterling O-Plux. And I have uh, – I'm a one-sticker. And so I've got a single stick with a, with a platform. Can you explain uh, that that process, the sting, the single stick uh, process? Because um, I, I mean, I know it's a thing, but I haven't, I haven't really checked it out yet. But I'm pretty curious about it. It, it it's extremely efficient, and it it's got a little bit of a learning curve to it. And I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you. It's got, um, it, it takes a, it takes a few climbs to get used to it. But once you, once you do, you kind of develop you're and it's just like anything else right there's a there's a basic premise to it and and so you always want to learn the basics first but then once you get that down pat you just kind of start figuring out little nuances that that help you um i guess do it do it more efficiently and so for me i um i, I always start out with i have a it's a two-step stick with an aider and so that my aider is about 18 inches and I'm 20 inches step to step on my stick. And, um, you know, the stick goes on the tree where the, the bottom of the aider is about right at my kneecap. Um, and, or if you can just kind of pick your leg up and bend your hip at a 90 degree angles, wherever your toe hits the tree. Right. And so you'll put it at that height tether goes on above it and then you just kind of sit back in your saddle and hook your bridge to your tether and just kind of put your weight on it put your foot in your aider and pull yourself up and then once you get yourself up to your second step you just kind of move your tether up make sure your uh cinch knots tight against the tree sit back in your saddle 
reach down, grab your stick, loosen it, move it up, position it to where you can get your foot in the bottom of the aider, tighten the stick down, and just keep repeating that process up the tree. Very interesting. I think uh, Michael started doing that. Um, yeah, yeah he, he loves it. Glenn, are you repelling or are you coming back down single step or single step? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm still one sticking back down. There's a couple of friends of mine have got into repelling. And I, I'll be honest with you, I've just never found one sticking back down to be enough of a pain in the ass to warrant carrying an extra <laughs> 30 feet of rope. And, and I'm sure that, you know, if I ever tried it, I probably would love it, but you know, I'm trying to cut down on the amount of stuff I'm carrying in the woods. <laughs> and that's, you know, you're talking another 30 feet of rope and, and a whole bunch of other stuff you got to carry in. And, um, but yeah, they swear by it, but I, I don't know. I just, I still just one stick down. Mm-hmm. Now I I want to I want to get into uh back into hunting here in a second, but the last thing I got to ask about is uh when you're coming when you're going up and down with that one stick method, do you ever find like a big problem uh with like limbs and stuff like getting up and around limbs uh particularly when you're coming back down? No, not not at all. So I have um um you know my bridge runs from bridge loop to bridge loop, and then um on you know tied in with a um, figure eight overbite on my left hip attached to a carabiner and a distal is a lineman's belt. And so if I, if I hit a limb, I pull my lineman's belt out, secure into the tree with a lineman's belt, take my tether off, move it up, clip back in, take lineman's belt off and then just keep going up. And the same way coming down, you just use that lineman's belt as a, as a safety line. Hey, on a side note, um, Glenn, do you feel, by the way, do you feel safer, you know, since you transitioned to uh, just using the saddle than using like a climber or a lock on or anything from the past? Oh, much. Say, I'm, I'm scared of heights. I always have been, which is, you know, for somebody who loves to deer hunt, especially bow hunt, that's kind of a problem, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so I've always been scared of heights and you will never, you have even, I can't, you know, it makes me cringe to think of some of the ways I climbed a tree before there were safety harnesses. And even with safety harnesses now, you know, I, I always got that. If I, if I wasn't touching that tree with at least an elbow or a hip or something, I'd get vertigo. And so I went, you know, I spent most of my time leaning up against the tree because if I ever stood out away from my platform, I'd get vertigo and lose my balance. Yeah, th- that would be that's a terrible time to get that to happen and, to you while you're up and there. And so, yeah, and so with a saddle, I mean, you, you know, it's going to hold you, especially one sticking, because you're, you know, you're testing that out every time you go up. And it's I've never it. I've never felt safer in a tree than I have since I since I switched over to a saddle. Yeah. Do you do you go like do you ever find yourself uh, going like way up a tree with that one stick method? No. Yeah. You can get up. I've I've gone past where I wanted to be just because you kind of get into a rhythm with it, and next thing you know, your five stick moves up and you're above the canopy and you can't see anything. You got to come back down. Dang. I'm gonna have to try that because I've been. 
I was telling Clay the other day that I'm considering buying a climber again uh, for some of these rifle spots where you got to get, I'm talking way up a pine tree to see in these thickets, but yeah. I don't know, that that sounds, if I can use what I already have and save some money, as long as I won't kill myself doing it, you know. Yeah, it's. I'll send you a link to a video. It's the one that I looked at first when I first started. And the this is a guy, he's been on, I think he's on that Saddle Hunter forum, um, I think it's his, uh, his name's Kane on there. And, um, he has a YouTube video where he kind of explained how he did it. And that's, that's the method that I use is what is his. Glenn, uh, before we get on to talking about gear and everything, kind of transitioning back to deer hunting, um, you made a comment about not hunting dead deer. What do you mean by that? And maybe what is, uh, a reasoning for kind of like, you know, that kind of phrase? Well, you get, you know, you, you start, um, relying on history, you know, I, well, I killed a deer here two years ago, or I know a friend of mine killed a deer here last year. And so you go into those areas where you've historically, you know, have killed something in the past, expecting to repeat that same process, not even knowing if there's any fresh sign or any, or if, if they're still on those same patterns in that area. And I've, I've been guilty of that several times. <clears throat> I'm one of those people that'll look at a spot and go, man, this is, a, you know, this is, this would be a great place to kill a deer and hunt it just because it looks really good, but there's no deer there. And that's the, you know, that's what I was trying to get. That's what I'm trying to get away from is to break out of those patterns on preconceived notions until the evidence proves that it's a good it's a good idea and that that transitions perfectly to the next topic i want to cover with you about is uh hunting small properties you have a history of of hunting small properties and that's a topic that we've had a lot of guys um ask us to cover on the show Uh, because you know a lot of guys we have on the show hunt a bunch of public land um and you know when you have thousands of thousands of acres to hunt that's not small properties by no means but you know you having you know small properties in south carolina and kind of growing up having having those opportunities um have been successful with it and i think small properties is one place that history can really bite you in the butt and doing the same thing over and over again uh on those properties when it comes to entrance routes exit routes kind of just your overall habits on the property uh which can you know really make it easy that if there are deer on the property and they consistently bust you to possibly pattern where pressure's at. Um, so that's a, that's something I really want to go down the rabbit hole with you on is uh, how to hunt small properties and your experience hunting small properties. So let me ask this to start us off, you know, what do you like about hunting small properties? They, you know, a lot of times these little, <clears throat> these little small pieces, it, they can be, um, they can be some hidden gems, you know, and they're, they're not all going to be, be that way, but they're, you can do a lot on a small piece of acreage that, that can really be, make that place attractive to a deer and make them want to be there. And that's a, you know, and that's the, I think that's the key to it because you think, you know, what's, when you think of a high deer density, give me a number that, that you think is a high deer density. Oh man, probably thirty deer per square mile. Okay, thirty deer per square mile, and a square miles what? You know the answer. Six hundred sixty acres. Yes, sir. Six hundred sixty acres. And so, if you're hunting a, 
if you got 30 deer per square mile and you're in that 660 acres and you're hunting a hundred acre parcel, how many deer can you expect to be on that hundred acres? Man, I, I can't do math. Yeah. I barely got out, yeah, right. I barely got out of community it's, college. It's not, it's not 30, right? And so yeah. it's one-sixth of that, which would be five. And so you're thinking about how do I make my property the most attractive out of the other 600, the other 560 acres of this 30 deer section so that they want to be here more than there. And, and that's, you know, the, our home place when we first bought it, it's only 41 acres, but it was the cleanest 41 acres you had ever seen. The guy bush hogged it all the way up to the tree stumps and it was just pristine it looked like a park and there were some deer tracks through it but there was there were no deer that were hanging around on it because they just didn't have any cover and so the first thing we did is we just quit cutting you know there were certain areas that we that we still maintain for fields and and food plots but you know we quit we quit bush hogging and did some timber thinning and got some thickets in there and gave these deer some cover and now you know we've got we they've got a reason to want to be there because they're secure in there um you know but that lends us to you know the real goal of doing that is we want deer on the property because we want to hunt those deer and so we have to make sure that you know when we do hunt those deer that we're not hunting them in the same place the same way every time and that's what can especially for something that's right outside your back door it's easy to get locked in. Wow, I'm just going to go jump into such and such stand, and and you know you hunt it over and over and over again, and those deer will pattern you. They'll stay in the places where they feel safe, and they'll avoid the places where they know you're coming and going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Glenn, talking about this topic, it, it actually kind of gets me excited because just um, some urban pieces of property that I've had access to over the last few years. And I told you about that a couple of nights or last night when we were on the phone. Um, but that was the first thing when you were talking about, um, you know, not hunting the same spots on some of these pieces and changing up your entrance exit routes. I was thinking about the piece I had back in Nashville you know, that was inside the city limits. That was just an unbelievable piece. But the problem was in that property was it was a very limited access onto the property where you only could come from the south and really it was the southwest side of the parcel. Um, but kind of listening to what you were talking about, you know, for guys that get access to small properties, whether it's through knocking on doors, whether it's a lease or, you know, even a small piece of public or, or even a small piece of public, a great, great analogy or great thought process, you know, where you just have a small parcel, you know, what is, I can imagine just because of personal experience that not alerting deer to your presence is absolute key. Um, especially if there's a big deer in the property, but I mean, what are some of the challenges that you ran into hunting small properties? That I think a lot of guys mess up on. Yeah, you know, and it could be it can be kind of a challenge, especially depending on on what borders that piece of that piece of property. And so, if there's other, you know, if there's other private ground or that you can't access it through, that you just don't have permission to trespass across, and there's no way to get in and out of there, it can make access kind of difficult, for sure. Um, but that, you know, and that and that becomes the challenge because one of the one of the pieces that I hunt, it's a, you know, it's a 225 acre piece and there's four gates and, you know, we get in the pattern of 
you know, if we're going to hunt the east side of the property, we park at the east gate and we walk in and we walk west. And and then we use that same route to go and access all the stands in that area or the areas that we want to hunt over there. And, you know, and if we're going to hunt the north section, we park at the north gate and we walk south. And so you get kind of in these ruts of where you park and where you walk. And on that particular piece, I just kept noticing that, you know, I'd see a bunch of sign, especially, you know, close to where we were parking, but I just wasn't seeing the deer. And, you know, listening to some, listening to some podcasts and talking with some people, you know, I've, I figured, you know, it's, maybe it's worth the longer walk to come in from the opposite direction when I'm wanting to hunt those areas and on, on those days that it's good to hunt those spots. And so if I was going to hunt somewhere on the east, I'd park on the west side and I'd head east. And it would take me, you know, 30, 45 minutes of walking to get there to do it. But then I started seeing those deer and started killing those deer. Now, what do you think that was uh, or what was causing that? Because you and me talked about this a little bit, but when it comes to entrance and exit routes, especially on smaller pieces, what is causing some of that lack of movement, even though the signs there and maybe even your trail cameras are showing that there's deer in the area? Yeah, and so, I, you know, I think it's been shown that deer will set up, you know, if there's security bedding and they know that there's a commonly used uh, parking area or entrance route, they'll set up and watch that area. And for, you know, some a couple of scenarios that I was just talking about on that, on that one uh, piece of property, I think that's what was happening. I think those deer were setting up and bedding in a, in a way that they could watch those you know those road beds and those walking trails that we were using to access that part of the property and and uh and then they were just moving in the opposite direction instead of where all the pretty sign was and then when we started coming in from the other side and backdooring them we started seeing those bucks they'd get up and move out of those beds and start moving towards that sign because you know in their mind, they hadn't been encroached on at that point. You know, something that came to mind was, I, I believe it was our episode, I think episode 125 we did with Adrian Farley uh, last year. And he was talking about hunting uh, some public land, but hunting greenfields on public land. And when he would park his truck at the gate on the greenfield, so there'd be like a you know main road, then there'd be a side road that you'd park at, and then go past the gate, and then the greenfield was down that road, you know, 100 yards or so. He would park there, and he started noticing, and I believe this is Adrian. I might be botching this, Adrian, if you're listening to the podcast. But he would park there, and a group of does would come by. They'd come across the road, and if his truck was there, they'd blow and then leave, and they would never come into the field. Same thing with the bucks. Well, he started noticing that, started parking his truck farther down the road on the main road, and then walking through, and then all the deer would come down that road, uh, that side road, and come into the field, and he'd get shots at him. I think he killed a really good deer doing that. Um and it's exactly the same thing. And I, I've kind of seen the same thing on, you know, family farms as well. It's like if they can see your truck or something, and especially if the truck's not always parked in the same spot every day. Yep, that's uh, right. That they know something's up. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and, and to get a step further, you know, that's the thing with like with, with permanent stands or fixed position stands. You know, they, they get into a habit. I can't tell you, you know, you ever seen a deer step into a food plot and the first thing it does is, turn its head and look towards the stand you oh, know oh, it, yeah you know it's, it's like they know they know where you're going to be and that's one of the you know things that i that uh, i picked up on and was not 
and again, it wasn't, I didn't have any unique epiphany. It was just taught to me by people who would say, listen, they're used to people being in that stand. Why don't you take your climber and go to the opposite end of the field and climb there? And sure enough, then you get to shoot them in the back of the head instead of them staring at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, now when it comes to betting, are you finding that more deer uh, are setting up in places where they can watch, you know, rather than setting up like in really, really thick stuff where they can't really see anything? Oh, it just depends, man. We, we've, um, you know, <laughs> I remember when, um, when I was at, uh, when I was at Auburn in undergrad and what, and taking, uh, wildlife biology classes with Dr. Causey and Dr. Causey was like, okay, so you have 200 acres of land in the Southeast. So congratulations. You've got um, 195 acres of bedding area and five acres of places where they won't bed, you know, mm-hmm. and in the Southeast, they can just, they can bed everywhere, but it's really interesting to see on a couple of these properties, you know, that, that, that I hunt, you know, public and and private that how much they adhere to security bedding, um, whether it be wind based or, or site based, you know, those, those principles will still apply. Um, but, um, I, you still have them that'll hit up in those thickets too, but for some reason they all bed around the edge of it. One thing that I'm trying to get at with that is, uh, like how often do you think these deer are like reliably betting in the same spot? I mean, are, do you think that they kind of favor like one area and stick to it most nights or are they kind of making their rounds and they'll come through, you know, once a week, maybe once every two weeks or something like that. And the ones around my house, they seem to be on a pattern and I don't think they're betting in the same place every night. I think, you know, those, the mature bucks, especially, they're, I think they'll bet on me one or two nights and then they're going to be gone somewhere else. And, you know, they may be, you know, a mile down the road because I, I might not get pictures of them again for three days, you know? And so I don't know, I don't know where they're going, but I just don't think that they're consistently betting in the same spot night after night. Yeah, Glenn, when it comes to hunting small properties, what other tips would uh, would you recommend for guys to pay attention to when hunting small properties? I mean, it, other than, of course, you know, you got to have, you know, a reason for the deer to be on the property, whether it's a travel corridor, you know, bedding, food, or all of the above. But, you know, what tips would you give guys that are hunting small properties to, you know, try to have as much success as possible on those properties? Yeah, you know, it's, it's again, I think it just goes back to, like you said, just making it as attractive to those deer as possible and being realistic about what you have you know do you have something that you can that you can um work with that's that you can create bedding areas and and reasons for the deer to want to stay on the property or do you just have a piece of property where deer are going to be transitioning through and and you know if you if you face the reality of you know this probably isn't going to be a a holding piece of property but you know property where you're going to catch them from coming through you just got to tune yourself in and to hunt it appropriately rather than you know expecting something that's not going to be there perfect perfect well 
you know, when it comes to your overall thought process also, just on the entrance and exit routes, do you also apply that same tactic or the same thought process when hunting public land? Um, to, a, to a degree. Um, for, you know, hunting public, I, I tend to want to um, – I, I tend to just kind of approach it based on the wind. And I want um, – you know, when I'm first scouting – I don't really pay that much attention to it. I'm just going to hit the trailhead just like everybody else is going to. And then if I see, you know, when we find the sign or, or I see something that I want to hunt and I feel, then you got to kind of judge, does it need a different approach or is it far enough back that it doesn't matter about the approach until you get within, you know, two, 300 yards or, uh, or so of it. Um, you know, but if it's close enough to the, to the truck and to the trailhead yeah you might want to try something unconventional because you know everybody's going to be parking and you know at those gates and walking those easier outs in glenn what is a piece of overlooked woodsmanship that maybe it's something that you pay attention to that you think more guys should start focusing on especially if they're using your thought process of scouting your way into a spot to you know have a good hunt and kind of execute a good uh, good area Oh, good grief. Uh, that's a that's a tough question, and I have a feeling any answer I give is going to sound arrogant as hell anyway. Um, <laughs> gosh, I don't, I don't know, man. You know, I, 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 I just I always feel like that I'm learning, and I just I, I don't I, – I try not to – because I know – I don't know everything, you know, it's like that old saying, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And you, and there's so much that changes and so many things that you can, that you can learn even after doing it for a long time that you just, you have to be okay with making mistakes and understanding that each mistake that you're going to make is going to be a learning process. And so whether it's, you know, hanging over bad sign or pushing in too deep or, um, you know, not being aggressive enough or being too aggressive. You know, I think that people just need to be okay with using those as learning opportunities, right? It's just like every turkey hunt's different. You never, you know, we'd all like to go in, roost them, set up, call, you know, 20 minutes later, bang, you got your boot on his neck. But, you know, how often does that happen? You know, you're always going to learn something new on every hunt. And it's the same way with, with, hunting whitetails and especially when you're hunting public land and going into areas blind you just gotta be okay with making some mistakes and learning from it and and trying to file that away glenn you you, you've said one thing right there that i want to ask you we talked a lot about earlier about what good sign looked like but what does bad sign look like for you what what is a sign that might catch somebody and maybe something some sign that guys will waste their time on that's not going to put a you know deer in their truck uh, pretty scrapes man those ridge top scrapes are a sucker's bet just about every time I, you know and uh you know i was a, i was a yeah before the the stand saddle hunting i was a saddle hunter like i if there was a saddle in a ridge that's where i was going to go to sit and sure enough there'd be scrape 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 and just really pretty ridge top sign but you know it's it, it always turned out to be a sucker's bet and i didn't start 
I didn't start seeing and killing deer until I moved off of those ridge tops and got down onto those onto those parallel trails. And and that I think that's um, you know that's number one. It's just it, that it, the prettier it is, you know, you can use that as an indication that yes, there are deer in the area. But you got to go really. You got to go find where they're moving in the daylight, not where they're moving in the dark. Glenn, to uh, to kind of wrap us up here, you know, you're you're up there. You're uh, you're hunting in Tennessee right now on some public parcels. Um, what are you doing over the course of this next week that you're going to be hunting up there to to kill a nice deer? <laughs> you, you, you just got to be in the woods, you know. And I, I get. Um, I was fortunate enough for a long time to have a work schedule that allowed me a lot of time to hunt. And I took full advantage of that. And, you know, my work life has changed to the point that it's cut my hunting time down by, by a lot. And so I always get kind of, kind of a chuckle when people say, well, it, you know, it doesn't feel like deer season, so I'm not going to deer hunt or it's too wet, it's too rainy, whatever. Um, you know, if the season's in and I've got a chance to go, I'm going to go. And so the main thing is, is like, you've only got so many days and you can't wait around on that perfect opportunity. And so I'm, you know, we've got some decent weather, but we've got some rain moving in and we're going to use those rainy days to get into areas where we need that type of, of, of cover and, hopefully get in and find some stuff that we wouldn't be able to get into otherwise if it was dry and so we're going to take full advantage of the weather and the days that we have the whole time we're here uh man yeah i love that that's a that's something that i've been wanting to implement more i think i the first time i heard uh, of like kind of that mindset was a uh, zach on the hunting public on one of their videos where it was like warm or rainy or windy or something he's like I like to take that and kind of, you know, most people are bummed out about it, but I like to turn it around and figure out how to use it to my advantage. Yeah, um, man. That's a, I, I love that. Uh, I got a story that I'll tell in the outro about that from this past weekend. But, uh, dude, Glenn, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. Um, do you have any, like, closing thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Well, um, I, I apologize for you guys having to put up with listening to me, but I appreciate the opportunity, <laughs> and I uh, it was good talking to you guys. And, listen, um, y'all, uh, you guys live live in a great state, and I miss it dearly, and we try to get back there as much as I, much as I can and uh, see friends and family. But uh, I've got a sister who still lives in Anniston, and my, my father lives on Lake Martin, so we've got uh, – you know, I've got deep roots there, and it's a you guys. It's a great state, good state to grow up and be a sportsman in, and learn how to hunt and fish. So, um, y'all take full advantage of it. All right, folks, that's gonna wrap up that episode. Jacob, what'd you think about it that? Was, it was fun, man. Fun talking to Glenn, talking to guys. Just kind of, uh, you know, got an old school mentality with some new school uh, kind of thought process, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. Especially kind of grow up in the '80s, dude. Mm-hmm. Child of the '80s. Getting it done with the bow. So. Well, yeah, it's and I think it's a pretty timely podcast right now because I mean, right now everybody's seasons are in, uh, and we're all kind of in the thick of it. Some some of us are going to rut soon. Some of us still have a month or two before the rut. But regardless, everyone's out there hunting and struggling trying to find stuff right now. So I think the whole aspect of um, 
knowing how to go in there and find sign and be confident finding that sign and setting up on that sign is is a pretty I mean, for me right now, that's the only way I'm going to kill a deer this year at this yeah, rate. Yeah, and your question that you asked, I thought was really good talking about, you know, how does sign differ when you're in an area with high or low deer densities? Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really good question just because that is huge. Because, I mean, you go to some areas where there's super high deer numbers, and, you know, you find what would be unbelievable feed sign down here, but it's not what's going to get you a deer yes. on the ground up there. Yeah, and I mean, just I've hunted up here my whole life, but these last three years I've been – I've been kind of away from it. I've been hunting more South Alabama and I've been up here periodically. Well, this is the first year in three years that I've like get, given all my time to this place. And so I'm having like a serious adjustment period right now when it comes to sign. Cause down in South Alabama, there's a lot more deer. Like it, they're not as big, but there's a ton of them. Um, so just the amount of sign that you find laid down. And I was talking to my friend, uh, David Douglas about it. He, uh, he's just recently getting back into hunting and I've been kind of giving him advice here and there. And uh, he was talking about hunting um, the same place that the listener success story came from mm-hmm. on Friday. He was hunting up there, and he's talking about the kind of sign he's finding. And I told him of some places. I'm like, look, like he's retired right now, so he's got time. I'm like, dude, if you got time and you're willing to go drive here, because there's a, the sign you're gonna see is gonna be a lot different. It's gonna get you fired up, and you're gonna like learn more fast. You're gonna see more deer. So. That's kind of the same thing that I was telling David is just, you know, where you're at right now is a low deer density, big wood setting. And, you know, you're just not going to find typically that super heavy feed sign, the giant beat down trail that looks like a cattle path type thing. Um, so I told him to go go to where that is because, you know, he was kind of struggling not being able to find it. I'm like, you're probably not going to find it there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, when Glenn was talking about this asking us and asking you, you know, what's high deer numbers and you're like 30 deer per square mile. And the way he broke it out kind of acreage wise, it doesn't feel like that many deer. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it's a good amount of deer, but then I'll think about it. I'm like, Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which to some people, 30 might be really high and to other people, 30 might be kind of low. It'd be super low probably yeah. in, for some people, mm-hmm. especially anyone like in a, like agriculture areas. Yeah. Um, you know, that might be, you know, really low, but, um, yeah, dude, this, that whole aspect of kind of like his thought process when it comes to like finding the right kind of sign while kind of easing through the woods and finding the right spot to set up on was just something that's interesting. Um, just because I feel like myself included, you know, you just want to go into a spot blind because it looks good on the map, but it might look good on the map, but you get there and the this deer aren't there right now. Or, you know, uh, you know, during the rut, you can look at a map, look at a topo map. Okay, this looks like a fantastic rut funnel. Make look like a great bowl, great thermal hub, social hub, bunch of different ridges dropping down. You're probably going to see deer. They're in early season, or kind of like right now, we're in the time frame right now. It may or may, may, or may not be great. Yeah. So that's, yeah. That, that was a really good point, kind of how he brought it up about kind of, you know, staging through an area and really trying to find the right kind of sign. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, so kind of going on from that, uh, we got a trip coming up. Yeah. Well, hold on. No, you had a story. You told you told the listeners oh. while we were doing the episode with Glenn that hey, I'm gonna say, I got a story I want to tell you that's on the same topic. Yeah. In the outro. Well, it's just about the it's about the the rain. It kind of goes into this past weekend scouting and hunting and everything. Uh, it was raining all weekend, which by the way, I got clobbered by Mother Nature on Saturday morning. It was bad. Um, I woke up at three and I was like, I looked at the radar. I'm like, oh yeah. This massive thunderstorm pushing across half of Alabama is going to miss me. 
No, it did not. It did not miss me. So direct hit. Direct hit. It was terrifying. <laughs> it was. It. I had to use my headlamp oh, to get out of the tree. But it is, it's a funny. It's a. You don't have to tell the whole story, but you're you're in the tree. Lightning starts cracking, and it's dark. Yeah. What what was it, what was going through your mind, and well, when, it, when so, did it hit? So there was a storm south of us, and it, it was like a a pretty decent storm cell. There's a lot of lightning in it. But it was it was way south of us, and you, you know you could see the lightning and everything it was like kind of you know you could see it way back there, but there was no thunder. It wasn't raining where I was. It was far away. I mean, uh, so I'm like, okay, and I'm lo- I'm looking at the radar, and it it's looking like it's just gonna go whoop right around me, and and that and that one did. So I'm walking in before daylight, and the lightning is like lighting up the valley that I'm walking through. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> it's like four o'clock in the morning, and I go up here uh, in this draw. I was gonna. Go up into a draw that led up into a cutover and hopefully find some feed trees, which I did I, in the dark. I found um, some good feed sign in the dark, actually, and set up on it. And uh, I get set up, and I'm sitting there waiting. Is the cleanest setup I ever do. I didn't make a sound getting in there. It, I was silent, completely silent. It was amazing. I'm like, yep, this is the morning. And uh, get set up probably right at sunrise, which is about 6.50 here. Um Start sprinkling. I'm like, okay. So I get out the radar again and look, and I'm like, hmm, there's another storm cell coming, and this one does not look like it's going to miss me. But it's showing like a break at like 7.15 to like roughly 9 o'clock. So I'm like, okay, that's going to be when I get one. And so it starts raining a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And then about 7.15, when I'm thinking it's going to break, it just suddenly gets like really dark. I mean like real dark and the bottom just falls out and it starts violently raining. <laughs> violently raining. The trees are whipping. It was like no wind. Trees start whipping. I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> I was terrified. I'm like looking up in the tree. I'm like, is there a dead limb? <laughs> I was thinking about what happened to you last year. Uh, I would have already been like Oh, oh yeah, I would be freaking out. Right so there. yeah, dude, I'm up in the tree. I'm like talking to myself. I'm like, this is stupid. I'm getting down. <laughs> <laughs> so I like shoot down out of the tree. It was oh, dude, it was terrible. I got absolutely dude. I, it started thunderstorm. I'm talking about balls out thunderstorm, <laughs> and I'm like hauling through the woods, man. I'm like jumping the creek and like cross it trying to get back. It was really terrible. Um, then I had to walk through an open exposed ridge and a cutover to get back to the truck for the last 100 yards. I'm like, yep, I'm about to get struck by lightning. <laughs> man, man. Yeah, that sounds terrible. So I, so I went home. I got back to the truck and went home and ate breakfast with my wife, which is a good idea. Um, had me some bacon and eggs, some coffee. I'm like, you know what? This isn't too bad. So soft. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, uh, I went and met up with Clay and we were going to scout midday. And the rain had pushed out by that point. And there was this one area that um, I'd scouted before. Michael and Clay had scouted there as well. Uh, and and they got some good bucks on camera in that area when they scouted it earlier this summer. Um, but we hadn't been back in there. And we're about to go on this trip to Wyoming. And uh, with how work schedules and everything fall, you know, me and you, um, we're probably not going to be out there until, you know, mid-November. Right. I mean, we're, it's going to be a good probably two weeks before we even go back out there. So I was saying, I don't want us to uh, go on this trip and then come back and then basically start over um, from scratch on this piece of public. Like just no scouting, no nothing. Because, I mean, it's a different time period. We're kind of getting into the pre-rut at that point in time. So 
I'm like, well, let's at least like throw out as many cameras as we can. And then when we come back, we can just run those cameras and see what's going on and, and at least have an idea. Um, so we took the opportunity where it was raining. We we're going to like still hunt our way into this spot. Um, and just like scout it in season. Cause at this point I've scouted it either once or twice. And I think they'd scouted it once or twice, but it had all been before season. So we're like, well, let's go in here and see what it looks like in the fall. Um, so we go in there and sure enough, it, it's nice and, uh, everything's wet. Everything's really quiet. The wind is pretty good. And we're sneaking through there and we find some buck sign. We find some great buck sign. We find all kinds of fresh rubs all over the place. We, there's a, a nice grove of uh, water oaks in there that are dropping, um, so I'm sure they're going to be really great, um, especially later season when all the other acorns are gone. Um, they'll keep dropping. So we go back in there, and we start hearing these blue jays cutting up ahead of us, and so we're like, there's some there's some deer up there for sure. And so we go sneaking. I mean, just, dude, quiet as a church mouse, just going right through the woods, no, no noise at all. And we go... Uh, we get up to the like the the curve of the hill, and Clay's like, "I either just saw a bird or an ear flick," and so we're kind of standing there. Well, the the crappy thing about this spot is that the the creek flows. Ooh, I don't know if I want to say which way it flows. That's what I, I was gonna say. <laughs> okay, the creek the way the, 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 the creek goes a certain way, and the one direction when it comes from a certain way, you have to access from the opposite way that the creek flows. Yeah, up upstream. No, you have to walk downstream. I know you're accessing from upstream, walking downstream. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, when you're walking in with the wind in your face, and this is what happened to us. When I was looking at the maps like two or three days ago, I was kind of thinking this, um, like thinking this might happen. But what happens in that situation is like we're walking in with the wind in our face, walking downstream. But the problem is, is like in that valley, especially on a cloudy day, you know, the thermals will, they'll still fall in the middle of the day. And the, that pull on that Creek is so strong that, I mean, the thermals down there really rip. Um, cause it's a big Creek and it was full of water, um, from that storm, like full of cold water. And so you're walking down and you got the wind in your face, but then, you know, it's, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and the wind dies down for like a 10 minute period. You know, you have gusts of winds throughout the day and it'll, it'll be high and it'll go down and it'll be high. Well, when the wind dies, then those thermals start ripping down that creek, dude. I mean, right at the back of your neck. And so then your scent is wafting way down the valley out in front of you. And then the wind kicks back up and it blows all that scent back towards you. Um, and that's exactly what happened to us. And these deer that happened and, you know, we had felt the thermals before, but then the wind hit us in the face again. And these deer, I mean... You know, Clay thought he saw one, and we're standing there, and then out of nowhere, dude, these these deer come tearing around the corner straight at us. So uh, evidently, they had smelled us from over there, and they didn't realize where we were. This spike comes running by. Well, hold on, hold on. Uh, you you gotta explain this a little bit. The deer were technically upwind of you. Yes. When the wind stopped, the thermals started dropping down and going down the creek towards the deer. Yes. When the wind turned got kicked back up it blew that scent back up the drainage where those deer were at which was in front of you exactly but technically was downwind with the thermals yeah and they smelt you and they ran back yeah with the wind at their back turns out they ran right into you it's the wind the scent molecules did a complete like 360 yes exactly they float up and there's like a and it's it's kind of a double whammy because you go up there 
and there's like a like a twist in the creek right there. And I think where that twist is, you know, there's a high likelihood that it kicks back really hard right there. Eddies. So even if the thermals are falling and they're going down that creek like low in the in the bottom, when they hit that, I think they might eddy back up. So when they're coming back at you, you're, they're three quarters away up the hill. That might be a money rut spot. Yeah, that's why that's why these deer are in there. I mean, that's what me and Clay were talking about. I mean, the deer that got on camera in there are big, real big. No, they're not. No, they're tiny. Just kidding. Um, but I mean, they're. It's like no wonder they're in here. Like they just, you know, that 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 totally goes with my theory of like I don't think that the deer actually. I don't think those bucks are any smarter. I think they just happen to live there. And it's like, how are you going to kill them? No, yeah. It's, I mean, Josh Driver talks about this like as. In Josh Driver's episode, episode of like 141, he believes that deer don't bed in a spot just because of access where they can monitor access. They bed in a spot where they get bumped the least amount. Yeah. So if they get Kind of like a dog, they learn by association. Yeah, so if they bump, get bumped out of their beds the least amount when they bed right next to the road, that's where they're going to stay at. Yeah. Well, in that spot, they can bed and, and travel through that area and smell 360 degrees around them no matter the wind direction. And completely yeah. feel secure. So that's mm-hmm. probably why there's deer in that area, especially deer of certain qualities. That, and that's that's what me and Clay were saying is like, so when we were standing in there, which by the way, so yeah, those deer smelled us and the spike, there was a doe and a spike. And the spike came running right by us. Uh, I mean, he ran like right above us on the hill. He never saw us. But this doe, we're standing on a deer trail, dude. This doe comes tearing around the side of that hill. And, I mean, I started to jump out of the way. Like, she almost ran right into – Clay's, like, fumbling when it's released, trying to get it in the D-loop. And this doe gets from, like, me to the computer right there to Clay. And then just, like, sees him and, like, plants that foot and freaking, like, does a little juke and goes tearing off through the woods. Dude, it was hilarious. I was I was like laughing when she was running away. I was like, dude, you almost just got taken out, man. (laughs) I mean, she was coming full tilt right at us. It scared me a little bit. I was like, what's going on? (laughs) But we're I mean, after that happened and we were standing there talking about it, I'm like, what went? How? What wind would you need to come in here and hunt this? And that kind of goes with what Glenn was saying. Is like, there's some spots where you're just gonna have to go in there and try it. I mean. Because even if it's a day with, uh, like, little to no wind, I mean, every day has a little bit of wind usually, and it's like if if you get one good gust at the wrong time, you know, you're screwed. But then again, it might not happen, and, you know, you might go in there and, and play it kind of risky, and it'll pay off. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you had you had a fun time with that. So did y'all put your cameras out? Yeah, we find, put find some rubs. Find some. Find we some found a, we found a rub. You find the scrape that you talked to Andre about in last week's episode. Oh, yeah, that, that's coming next. So in that spot where those we bumped those two deer, um, we found a rub there, where this rub is like, like uh, in between my belly button and my nipples. Like there, it's that high on me. It's like right mid body, uh, where it's broken off. So about four, about three and a half foot on you. That giant sleeping bag. That that sleeping bag. We're gonna, in there? The, we're gonna put that on the Instagram. That yeah, is this hilarious. sleeping bag is forty four inches tall, it, like wide with forty four. Yeah, it's forty four inches wide. So when you stand <laughs> it up, I got it rolled up. So when it stands up, it's forty four inches high. The rub was broken about that high up. Oh, on um, that one tree you're talking yeah, about. It, yeah, it was huge. Um, so the rub and it was rubbed higher than that. So the rub kept going up the tree, but he broke it. He bent it over and rubbed it. Like, bowed it over. No, I mean, he snapped it and everything. I know, but I'm saying, like, to rub some of the top part of it, 
I mean, I don't know how to. Well, well, then. Uh, sh- yeah, sh- yeah. Don't want to say too much here, but no. You've already talked too much. Yeah, but yeah, that that rubbed yeah, we got detectives me. that listen to the show. That got man. me fired up when I saw. I was like, "Holy crap!" Because it takes like a certain kind of rack. I feel like to do that, you know, like that deer's got to have a serious rack to twist up a tree like that. Um, but anyway, there's all kinds of rubs in there. So we put one right there. Uh, we f- we flipped around to the back side of the bedding area found like two or three intersecting trails of the scrape, put one right there, uh, and then went to the scrape that Andre, uh, that I told him about that he, that he liked so much. Mm-hmm. Man, I forgot how impressive that scrape was. Like when we were walking in, I'm like, did I just like, do I remember it better than it is? And I like just talked it up on the show cause I was fired up. Man, no, we got in there, and I was like, golly, this scrape is crazy, man. I need to take you in there just to show it to you. It is ridiculous. I got a video that tries to show it, but, I mean, when it comes to, like, a licking branch as big as your pinky that's busted off, there's probably four of them. Um, there's probably three on one tree and, like, or two on another, so maybe five. Because there's two beech trees on either side of this trail, and both trees are ru- are scraped almost all the way around. Every single branch coming around. It's like one giant continuous scrape. It's ridiculous, man. Sure, it's not turkey song. It's not. Turkey <laughs> <laughs> and, and then dropping down in there, there, it's a bowl again, like another spot. It's another spot where the wind is just impossible. Uh, and we drop in that bowl and stand there, and here's like within sight between like nine and fifteen rubs. You know, wherever you're standing, you can just look now. Fresh rubs. Now, is there thick cover close by? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's on the back side of a feature which will not be named because it is a dead giveaway but it's on the back side of a feature that uh most people probably you, you give up you, you give up way more info than needed michael pike's probably listening when he's listening to this episode tomorrow morning he's gonna be like <laughs> andrew he just can't keep his mouth shut man, yeah that could be mouth. anything oh man daggum airports goodness gracious <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't say it <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh, um so yeah well, cool. So you found a bunch of sign like that. So yeah. Prep, prepping for Wyoming, by the way. Um, so yeah, we're going to be leaving in like what four days, five days. By the time the next episode drops, we'll be on our way. No, we'll be. Or we'll be there. We'll be hopefully a buck down. Mm, I don't know about that. Hope what? Well, day, yeah, day hey, two. What are yeah, you talking? Yeah, I could. About? Yeah, I got my days mixed up. Jeez. Hopefully. God. That's the idea. So I mean, what's the give people a rundown? What's the, look, we going thick? <laughs> oh no, no! You tell me. You tell you tell the listeners what you found through all your hardcore research of all these road hunters. Oh, out dude! There. Okay, I went down the absolute rabbit so, hole. So talk about habitat. Like, what we what are we working with, and what's the traditional way guys are hunting up there and talking crap about it? So there's the the kind of habitat is is Wyoming. So it's high desert, sagebrush, which, which, stuff they, like that. Is that what they call it? High desert. Yeah. Man, quit breaking my chair. Is that, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, high desert. So it's it's sagebrush, like very little rainfall type stuff, no trees uh, for most of it. But in our unit, we also have a decent amount of like large river bottoms. So there's several rivers in the area. And around those rivers, there's a lot of agriculture. So you have center pivots, you got some cattle, uh, cornfields, bean fields, alfalfa, stuff like that. Um, and then along the rivers, you've got marshes which it i haven't been there yet but it looks like cattail marshes i'm almost 100 mm-hmm. percent sure uh i know that some people duck hunt in this area um because it's i was just reading up on some of the areas and they talked a lot about waterfowl um a lot of pheasant hunting goes on here um so that just to give you an idea that's kind of the cover you're dealing with so these river bottoms are kind of they're going to be super diverse they're going to have 
you know, your typical big cottonwood drainages on the main rivers where you're going to have your larger cottonwood trees. They're going to have alder thicket type things. Um, they're going to have cattail marshes in certain spots. They're going to have ag fields. And then outside of that, that river bottom, it's a really stark uh, contrast. Like it just like goes bam and you're in sagebrush right there. So really hard edge all the way around it. Um, and there's kind of public sprinkled throughout it. But um, I did, I went down the total rabbit hole um, with just internet scouting. I mean, just trying to figure out what people were saying about the area, trying to find pictures of the area. So we kind of knew what it looked like, which hot tip, Google Earth for your desktop, the one that you actually download on your computer. If you go zooming around on it, you can turn on like a layer that's pictures and it's like a, like a picture on the map and you click on it and it shows you like a picture that somebody took in that spot. Not all of them are in the right spot though. You'll click on one and it might not be the exact spot, but if you can tell, you know, that's the exact spot, then you know what you're looking at. So I went around and I was looking at all that stuff, um, trying to like correlate what I was seeing on the map of what these pictures were showing. And I think I got like, quote unquote, the profile of like what quote unquote good cover out there is going to look like in these bottoms. Um, so I did that, but then also just freaking just you, like you lurking tore, you tore up the forums lurking on the forums hardcore well, i mean like, going through threads into threads into more oh, threads. Dude. yeah oh yeah so diving like <laughs> 15 layers deep on a, on a oh, certain dude. topic it's like, a, it's like an onion man so yeah there's this one guy on there he's asking about this unit and you can hunt mule deer or whitetails most guys are definitely after mule deer um because i mean why would you drive 27 hours to kill a whitetail but unless you're us, I guess. But um, so most of the guys are deer hunting, mule deer hunting. Um, the the mule deer reports are kind of all over the board for the area. But for the whitetail guys, there's very few guys who are like targeting whitetail specifically out there. And there's some people. There's one thread on our on our unit, and I think we've all like kind of skimmed through it and read it. And when you first read it, it's kind of discouraging because there is a guy on there who's talking about uh, going whitetail hunting. He's like. Yeah, it was pretty disappointing. I had to get really creative to to find a whitetail outside of town. And I was like, hmm. And I sent it to y'all. Michael was like, man, we're going out there. (laughs) Michael seemed pretty bummed about it. And uh, they were talking about buck quality. They're like, yeah, I just saw a bunch of does and spikes and blah, blah, blah. Pencil horns. Pencil horns. And Michael's (laughs) like, so we're driving all the way out there to shoot an Alabama buck. I was like, hell yeah, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> so I start peel. I, I start going through the onion, man. All these guys on there. So the the thread went. It was a guy asking about like, hey, when when this season comes in, this is gonna, you know, how can I expect it to be? Well, the thread kind of died when s- the season started and then reopened uh, in January after everyone's hunt. So the guys like, how did everyone do? So everybody starts chiming in on this thread again, and I start. I start going through and looking for their threads. So each one of these guys that hunted the unit, they all did their own threads on uh, on the unit. So I found Mr. Whitetail that was hunting it, and I find his separate thread where he was asking for advice for his hunt and telling everyone how it went. Come to find out, he just had two doe tags. He's from Colorado, um, and he went up there. Joker posted a screenshot with the pin of where he shot his deer. So he killed a doe in this one spot. Gave everybody a nice Onyx map screenshot. So I was like, sweet. And so I go type in the coordinates, check it out. Sure enough, it's a thicket, 200 yards off a road, 
about five miles outside of town. I'm like, that's like, I'm not dogging the guy because they hunt different out there, but I'm like, when he said I had to get creative to find a whitetail, that is not what I pictured in my head. Um, and the more I dug and the more different threads and different people who I like dug into their threads that they put out there, the more I realized that when it comes to whitetail hunting out there, at least the guys that live out West, the vast majority of them are straight up road hunting. Not, not like shooting them out a window. (laughs) (laughs) All you Southerners. Not not Alabama road hunting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> get it together get oh it together. man that's funny i'm like there's guys out there like this imagine and you get that little contraption holding your rifle on the side of your truck window. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's terrible oh, man. <laughs> sitting around next to the deer crossing sign the <laughs> <laughs> state says it's a pretty good spot <laughs> oh god uh, that's bad no but yeah but that's what it seemed like kind of looking at those stories because you uh you sent some over to us and uh the more the more i dug into it the better it looked well, even like. for, even for mule deer, because dude, I'm down for either one, and it seems like a lot of guys are just driving around. Try, they're like, "Oh yeah, there's a bunch of mule deer does down in the bottoms, down in the you know down the uh, drain or down in the ag you know fields and everything." But you know they can't really find any bucks, and it sounds like they're sitting in their truck looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you read it, and some people like will straight up like kind of describe how they're hunting, but then other ones, the way they talk about it, you can kind of infer. And uh, most people are. It's kind of like if you've ever watched Randy Newberg stuff, it's the same way with antelope. Uh, most people like just don't even understand why you would ever not road hunt for antelope out, out there. That's what Randy Newberg says. Um, because there's so many of them, and you can see so many from the road that a lot of guys just drive around and you know scout with the truck until they see one they want to get, and they go get it. Where Randy is like finding great success in these in these like easy to draw units killing great bucks where all he's doing is parking and walking over a ridge or a hundred yards over a ridge where you can't see into this big valley from the road and he's seeing all kinds of stuff that everyone else is overlooking so i feel like it's going to be extremely similar with this for both mule deer and whitetail especially because the majority of these mule deer guys are hunting the blm high desert desolate flat sagebrush there's just like nothing out there um so uh, I think that I think that we're going to be able to put ourselves ahead going in with the mindset like let's let's literally key in and focus on places that you can't see from the road or stuff that people aren't going to walk to cuz I'm sure with all these walking areas where you can sit, you know, a alfalfa field with a rifle, you know, guys guys will be willing to walk to that. Um I could totally see guys parking and walking, you know, half mile, three quarters of a mile to, to sit a good field. If they have to cross through some through some uh, thick cover or cross water or do anything like that, do any kind of weird stuff to get to a spot, I mean, I, I'd be really surprised if we ran into people. Yep. So, what do you think? Oh, yeah. that I'm, I'm going to try and get in contact with one of the farmers down there, one of the landowners, try to see if we can get access back to some other uh, piece of public. And also, I mean, even – depending on whether or not they even allow access to be able to hunt, you know, on the backside of their property right there um, that backs up against some of the, some of the property that we'll be able to hopefully get to. Um, yep. But no, it's exciting. I mean, just looking at it and look at, just looking at the habitat out there. I'm just, I'm just so fired up. I'm so ready. Just, <laughs> like, let's go. Yeah. I'm um, excited. And then you go out and buy, we got to put this on Instagram because it is, I cannot believe you bought this thing. You bought the biggest 
sleeping bag. I think don't they call it the Magnum? Yes. It's the Magnum. <laughs> what are you giggling at, man? I'm just asking you what the name of it was. You know, weird on me now. Listen. Um so <laughs> Jeez, man. Oh man. No, but so Andrew gets this giant sleeping bag. He's like, oh man, I'll, I'll, look, I try to get you a deal. You could fit a Sasquatch in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, it's 44, 48 inches wide. Yeah. It's designed for two people. It's like 90 inches long. Yeah, it is 90 inches long. I mean, a family of four. A, a family of four. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God. yeah. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, you got a bazooka. I don't know. Well, no. The reason I bought it is because they had two. So I wanted the zero degree bag, and they had two of them. And one of them was like the woman's version, and it was like it was shorter. It still would have been fine, but I wanted like more room. Uh, so, cause I'm like, if I'm getting this like rectangular bag, not a mummy bag, I want like room to like sleep in it, you know, and not just lay there like a mummy. Uh, so I didn't want to get the women's version. Um, so I got the giant <coughs> magnum version. <laughs> All right. So you're about five, nine, five, ten ish. Okay. Yeah. That bag is seven and a half feet long. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's enormous. So you're able to get down in there, cocoon up inside of it and just go oh, hibernate. Yeah. Oh yeah. That joker is warm too, dude. It is. It's thick. Um, but another thing, another reason I really like it is, uh, for like more mild trips, like what we're going to do here in Alabama a lot. Uh, you can actually unzip the thing and it's got like a zip up fleece blanket in it. Mm-hmm. So if it was like a, like not too bad of a night, you could easily unzip the sleeping bag and fold the flap off of you and just sleep with that blanket that's sewn into it. By the way, just on a side note, uh, so we just dropped a video on the YouTube channel earlier this week of Andrew's uh, backpack setup for uh, packing in uh, his equipment. Uh, for his hunts that y'all can go check out on the YouTube channel. By the way, yeah, so if you're listening to the podcast, you subscribe to the podcast. If you aren't subscribed to the YouTube channel, you need to get on there and check it out. Got a ton of content on there, uh, working on a bunch of other stuff. Actually, got a lot of stuff I'm trying to get Andrew to drop this week, but uh, <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Uh, but our Wyoming hunt from 2017 actually just got posted up there not too terribly long ago. Uh, so you can kind of see like what we did last time yep. uh, when we were up there. It's a real fun trip. Uh, highly recommend it for a lot of people. You know, I, I meet so many people like, oh, man, that's my once-in-a-lifetime trip. I'm like, why? It doesn't have to be. Nah, dude. It, d- it doesn't have to be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is the second time we've, we've gone. Well, then again, we don't have kids, and you're just now married, so a little Very different. True. Different different if you had like three or four kids and been married and all, yes. all that kind of Yeah, that, that's definitely, definitely. Kind of, kind of tied down, son. But, uh, anyways, but yeah, on the YouTube channel, we're gonna be dropping some more videos, uh, very, very, very soon. Um, got some really exciting stuff. I'm trying to get Andrew to just drop it, just, just put it out there, man. Put it. <laughs> anyways, just like the podcast. Um, other than that, dude, you got anything else? No, I think that's, I think that's, that's all I got. Well, boy, all right, cool. Well, um, there was something else I was gonna say before we start getting to some reviews. Um, Man, goodness gracious. Oh, listener success stories. Okay, great. So I forgot that I was going to say this earlier on, actually, in the episode. Uh, so we are starting a little mini-series, uh, which actually our first episode of it just dropped this past Friday. I think we're going to start dropping them on Thursdays, though. Yeah. Um, it's our listener success story uh, mini-series, which uh, once a week we're dropping a podcast episode where we interview a listener who had success using tactics from the podcast in certain episodes to go out and kill, you know, good bucks. And uh, right now, I think, 
we got two more that came in today. I think we've got like 10 or 12 um, yeah. just from like the last couple weeks uh, from Listener Success Stories. There's some really, really, really good ones, guys. Uh, so those will be dropping hopefully every Thursday, um, you know, over the next, you know, ever how many weeks. Again, we get roughly 10 weeks worth right now. Uh, but anyways, it's going to be really interesting because you're going to be able to listen and hear from guys who some of them have been – listeners of the podcast only for three or four months. Other ones have been listeners to the podcast for two years. And you can kind of hear how they apply tactics from the different episodes to go out there and have success. And it's really, really interesting, especially kind of pick their mind up, you know, what did they do beforehand and what caused them to change. So anyways, those are dropping again every Thursday. So make sure you check those out. Uh, Again, just because it ain't Monday, don't forget about us now. All right. So (laughs) that's right. As soon as you listen to the episode, just remember, we got another episode coming out every week. Uh, And again, to share the podcast with friends and family, we really appreciate that. Uh, The show has absolutely exploded over the last six months. And we appreciate you all sharing the episodes with different people, especially episodes that you enjoy. uh, And just keep it up. Hey, and, uh, you know, we always ask if you really enjoy the show, please go into iTunes and leave us a five star review. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Actually, come to find out <clears throat> how the charts work for rating charts. Right? As of, I don't know, a couple of days ago, we were uh, 17th and um, – We're 14 right now. Oh, we're sitting at 14th um, 14th place, I guess you could say, uh, or in, in the charts for Wilderness Podcast in the United States, which is a really big deal for us. Um, and how that's kind of rated is through reviews. Uh, it's not necessarily through downloads, not necessarily through audience size. It's through reviews. So if you like the show – and we want to kind of help us move up the charts, which we would greatly love to do. We broke at one time into the top ten. We would love for you I to – I think the highest we've been is four. Yep. I'm pretty so, sure. So if you would go and leave us a review, that would be fantastic. Yeah, normally the top three is always like Meat Eater, Wired to Hunt, and like the Hunting Public. Yeah, they, they, they kind of switched her out there. So, anyways, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. That being said, you got to pick up some of these balls, man. I, I know, I know. We got to, we, we're going right. to read through some of these as well, just kind of uh, a little shout out. Also, this, this one's, wait, what? No, no, I was going to say just the Patreon. Again, if you like the show, you know, please uh, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. And, uh, you know, f- you know, if you really enjoy the show and you want to donate some money to the show to kind of help us with this, uh, again, especially being kind of unsponsored, and there is expenses for the podcast, uh, let alone time that goes into this, but uh, we greatly appreciate it. So. Uh, all right, this guy left five stars, and the, t- the subject is, let's break this down a little further. Um, almost did four stars over the term, <laughs> over the use of the term, break it down. But the breakdowns are so good, I just couldn't do it. Probably the best co- podcast for diehard hunters, especially in the South. Jacob felt personally attacked. <laughs> that hurt a lot. He did say it a lot, man. When I was editing <clears throat> that podcast, I didn't I didn't quite realize. If I had realized how many times you said it, I would have cut more of them out. Listen, we could have an awesome drinking game. I mean, if you, oh, yeah, of course. You could have an awesome drinking game from this podcast. <laughs> of course, <Okay>. man. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to hear it, Andrew. Of course. All right. No, God, I don't know how Tiffany puts up with you now. All right. Five-star review. Um, simply put, the best from that dude, Sam. Very nice. There are shows with larger audience, uh, and I listen to many of them. It, oh, goodness. I got to – jeez. It is shows like those that help me find shows like this. I learn more from this podcast than the big ones each and every time I listen. Additionally, uh, this is a very regionally oriented program 
that means I don't have to try and uh, figure out how western elk hunting applies to whitetail deer in the southeast. This show feels local. I know the two guys uh, that have been on the. Sh- I know two guys that have been on this show and have only been hunting for two years and listening to the podcast for about six months. Even when they are talking about someone from PA or Pennsylvania, uh, it feels local. Love the show. Cheers from North Carolina. Awesome, dude. Cheers, my man. All right. Great detailed interview by Big Hunter 07. Uh, he left five stars. Love the detailed questions and the break it down follow up questions. Ah, there you go. Uh, heard a few cans popping in the background. Beer 30, LOL. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Not today, though, because yep. I have to work. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course, man. Of course. Of course. Of course, lot. There you go. All right. Five stars. My favorite podcast from uh, Jordan Morris. Listen to the Tony Myers episode for the third time today. That nice. man is a wealth of knowledge. And the host asks the perfect questions so the listener can gain the absolute most from the interview. This podcast is awesome. By the way, that was a really good episode on a side note. And I highly recommend anyone that hasn't listened to it, go back and re-listen to it if you have. But if you haven't listened to it, you need to spend some time and check out that episode. You know what? Now that I think about it, what? that Tony Myers episode might be our number one downloaded episode. No way. Yeah. I'll have to go back and look at Glenn's because I don't know where it's at now. But I can't imagine that. It's it's higher than Andre's. No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No okay. Kidding. Anyways, back to the, back to this review. I've listened to numerous podcasts with Andre DeQuisto, uh, but you guys interview, but your guys' interview was the first ever interview with him that I could relate to the information provided. I have listened to it twice already, and I feel like there is so much to learn from this episode. You guys are great. Keep up the good work, and good luck in Wyoming. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can get it done in Wyoming. Um, yeah, guys, these these uh these reviews are are definitely great. If y'all could. Keep leaving them. That's awesome. Um, another one here. Awesome show. Five stars from MacTastic08. <laughs> Still loving the show. My question is, can you guys start asking their guests about their bow and arrow setup? Bam. Gotcha. Already did it. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll do it more often with uh, big-time bow hunters. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to do that a little bit more. I, you know, I'm a person. I could. That's fine. I'll ask it, but I'm not, like, super overly interested into it. Because, I yeah. mean, you kill a deer with whatever. I mean, whatever kind of arrow set up but yeah, yeah. if y'all want to hear about we'll try to ask it do you, do you have the full title for this one uh no it won't show the whole thing um real world hunting yeah the uh this last one is five star reviews real world hunting the unventor unventor change I, i'm assuming uh, i don't know why it's cutting me off here i can't see what all it maybe if i turn it sideways i tried it didn't work but it was just from Man. swamp donkey killer best podcast best podcast period that's just that's all, that's all you need to know Knocking stuff over over here. Started listening two turkey seasons ago and didn't know what an awesome podcast I had found until I started listening to deer season content. I started over I started over from episode one and now my Monday mornings are set aside to listen. Recently on a hunting trip to some highly sought after drawn hunt public land. I wonder where that could be at. I, drove, uh, I tried another podcast during the drive there just to listen uh, the whole time. And, man, the guy they had interviewing or was interviewing is a killer. Uh, they just didn't know how to get it out of him. Bobby Worthington, y'all should get him. Anyhow, on my trip using the method – oh, goodness. 
anyhow, on my trip using the methods from the podcast and map scouting, I had a shot at 150 class, 150 inch class, 10 point. Two days of tracking later, I'm a believer in no man's land. Bummer. That, that is tough, dude. That's a heartbreaker. Yep. Uh, dried up my tears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dried, man, I'd still be crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Dried up my tears and went to the second spot I'd picked and had an opportunity at a 15-inch, uh, I think it's a 15-inch uh, spread slammer eight-point, but in this area, it has to be 16 inches um, on this land. Oh. Yep, that's, I'm pretty sure what that is. Okay, uh, okay. But before, but before your podcast, I would have spent days wasting time just trying to find deer. I was on a mature deer from day one. All the other guys in the camp complained about not it not being, or I'm sorry, all the other guys in camp complained about it being hot. I told them about your podcast. Hopefully, you two get to kill some slammers this year. I'm on a few. Oh goodness, I'm on a few. I'm on a. You few, struggling there, bud? No, read. It. I'm on a few on some. Pub, okay, listen, guys. It's not just me reading. Nothing gets people that write reviews. I'm on a few on some local land. I'll send a success story soon. Oh, that PS, makes more, that makes more sense killer. when you read it. <laughs> Made some Mississippi killers on. <laughs> Jacob went to a nice college preparatory <laughs> school, and he can't read. I can't do math. Jacob can't read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, don't worry, uh, man. I, I, I'm I already told you. I mean, you don't feel too bad, but, you know, he's talking about the math thing, dude. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there in college, and we were doing some stuff. <clears throat> school of forestry, we were doing some, like, forest measurement type stuff, mm-hmm. and there was a test, and we – um. We weren't allowed to have a calculator, and I had to do a long division problem. Okay, I'm done. Nope. <laughs> I had to do. It. I, I wrote this out. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I write it out and everything, and I was like, Oh my god, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I'm sitting here like a junior in college. I'm like, I forgot how to do this. Uh, technology. Yeah. yeah. No, that that was terrible. Um, but you know, we do need some more Mississippi killers on because we haven't yes. we haven't had many. By the way, though, Paul Putera, who we had on just a few weeks ago, he just killed a slammer off the ground frontal shot, spot and stock, spot and stock in a Pennsylvania on public land, dude. And if I remember, he was doing something similar to what we talked about in this episode, uh, scouting his way in, right? Negative. He's been tracking the deer for three days. Oh, well, I mean, still same concept. Well, I mean, yeah, but he found the rub line. He's been, he, anyways, this deer had very noticeable a certain type, type of weird track and he had been mm-hmm. tracking it for roughly three days since he had bumped it and found it rubbing a tree as he was easing down his rub line got within like <sighs> 18 20 yards and freaking shot it and just like put it down oh and dude it man. is a freaking it is a big deer Rance Ferry shared that didn't he oh i don't know i think he did maybe i think he did i mean he was shooting like a 300 grain vpa three blade broadhead mm-hmm. i mean just freaking zipped yeah, it through i mean zipped it giant through. Front, point frontal shot zipped it through him Wow. Heart shot it. Whew. Oh, you should have seen the heart. It was ridiculous. Holy um, And then also, talking about another guest we had on, uh, Mr. Land Smathers down in Mississippi, he killed another slammer, dude. Uh, yeah. To yeah, Well, he shot yesterday, recovered it this morning. Uh, just a big 10-point. Huge point, buck. Big Mississippi 10-point, South Mississippi 10-point. Just mm-hmm. big deer. Yeah. Shot it off the ground, hunting a crossing, hunting feed sign in a creek crossing in the air between two thickets. Mm-hmm. First, only deer he saw the whole night, and it was the deer he shot. Golly. Shot it off the ground with his bow. I'll say this. Um, if you're still listening right now, like all the way to the end, uh, we thank you for it, and you're, you're probably one of our more de- dedicated listeners. So if you could, if you know somebody who would be good on the podcast, recommend them, please. Um, it could be, you know, your dad and your grandfather, your uncle who's good, a guy in town, you know, you know, at the hardware store or something like what, whatever the situation is. Um, 
especially you know we get a lot of requests for guys from uh, Mississippi and Louisiana, and y'all some tight lipped mugs in those areas, man. Like yeah. we, it's it's hard to find people. I know there's killers there, and we found several, and just not many of them are willing to talk, which I get. I do not fault them for that whatsoever, but. There is one guy, by the way, anyone that has a contact uh, with Bird Dog Walker out of South Georgia, let me we know. We want to talk to him. We heard some things. We got to talk to old Bird Dog. That's the guy we got to get on the podcast. And any of the Georgia boys from South Georgia, they, they know who we're talking about. Uh, but, yeah, definitely try and get in touch with old Bird Dog. Uh, yeah. So, and so, like I said, if, if you've got anybody that you'd recommend who you think would be a good good fit for the show, you know, uh, have success on a consistent basis. That's really the main thing. Um, you know, it's great if, if, you know, they've killed 150 inch deer and everything, but really what's more important is the, is the, uh, consistent success factor. And I think the good example of that is Glenn Solomon, um, who we talk about all the time, you know, Glenn, you know, he was killing top drawer bucks for his area, but they're not like, they're not 145, 150 inch deer. Uh, but he's killing the, the top age class deer in his area. And, you know, if there were bigger deer there inch wise, you know, he'd be killing them. So, uh, you know, some of these deer, like what he was killing may not have like the sticker shock, quote unquote, that like the deer we posted with Andre last week, you know, just mm-hmm. giant bucks. Uh, but if someone is consistently killing mature deer in their area on public land, that's who we want to talk to. Definitely. Um, and, and, you know, someone's got some, like, outside-of-the-box weird tactic that not many people do, even better. Because that makes some good listening content right there. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, is there anything else we need to go over? I'm trying to think. I don't think so. No, I think that's all. So send us your recommendations. Leave us a review if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, good luck, man. Go kill some deer. It's deer season, baby. Yep. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about 
Hey, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.